Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. All right, well, good evening. It has a magnet. Pump it up, pull it down. Well, I used to do this all the time for Sunday evening services. How many of you in your past did a lot of Sunday evening services? Aren't you glad to be out of that? Well, first thing I want to say is thank you very much for adjusting your life and coming back to a Sunday night. I thought, hey, this might be a little different for me because we won't have to do a Sunday morning talk. But what ended up happening was chapter 6 ends up being two really, you know, thick talks. So I had to write two talks this week. So it ended up being more work, and I thought it might, might be a little easier but I want to pray about this because, uh, number one, I'm entirely too excited. And the second thing is that there's so much material, I, I just need to pray that, that I can be clear. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together to open your word, especially as... We uh, come upon Passion Week, consider what your death and resurrection mean to us, perhaps in ways we haven't thought about. We look forward to celebrating next week. We look forward to living out this new reality we live in, uh, moment by moment. I just pray for clarity. I pray for... your spirit to guide my words. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we spent some time in Romans chapter 5, which is obviously our security text. That's what we have uh, been saying. And the whole thing, I don't have the whole image here. I don't think it's on here. Uh, but we have, uh, you can see the mountain over there that goes to Romans 8. You have your charts, hopefully. Um, one of the things that uh, we said Paul is really trying to do is talk about the assurance of glory because he's trying to assure believers. He's trying to show them That the salvation God has given them is certain all the way to the end. All right? And here's kind of the way I'd like to start by looking at this. Just by simply asking a simple question like this or, or something like that. Um, we said, in, well, maybe it's better if you look at the picture. Because we said there's justification and then there's sanctification. Okay, and then there is glorification. That's what your chart has. Okay? Uh, and so I just kind of want to pose the question this way to you. Uh, does God's grace, does God's grace only go this far that we can count in the chart? So we talked about justification, leading to sanctification, going to glorification, all the way. Is God's grace good enough only to get the whole ball rolling? Because that's really one of the questions 
that we're addressing. Does God's grace really end here? That he put everything, in other words, is salvation front end loaded? You get everything at the front end, but we're really not sure about the middle piece, and no one really knows if you're going to make it all the way to the end. That's the question. And so we're, we're saying two questions arise from that. Because Paul has just front-end loaded in Romans 1 to 5. He has front-end loaded salvation to justification. And so the question logically becomes, well, what happens in the middle piece? Because that's, that's really the question we're asking. What happens in the middle? And then, and by that I mean, okay, so, am I secure in the future? It's two questions. Am I secure in the future? Because it appears like God's grace is front and loaded. Am I, am, I, am I assured of the future? And then what happens in the middle? Can I sin? And by the way, you need to learn sanctification just as much as you did justification. Sanctification is just making you holy. That's all the word means. The process of making you holy. Okay? Well, let's use the word righteous. Here you were justified, declared righteous, even when you were guilty. Here you are constituted righteous or made righteous, made to act righteously. So this has more to do with how you act. This has more to do with what was done for you. Okay? So here's really the question, and I want you to just kind of grade God, if you will. Grade God on this scale. God... I would give you an A for justification. You're great at saving people. You're great at saving people. What kind of grade would you give God for changing people? What kind of grade would you give? You're great at saving people. What kind of grade would you give God? Looking out at Christianity and how many people claim to be one. You say, God, you're great at saving them. What kind of grade would you give God? For making them whole. Most of us in here would say, I don't know if God, I don't know if God, I don't know if God gets his higher grade. And that's really the question. What's happening in the middle piece? Because I'll tell you this. The idea that grace really stops here and the rest of it's unsure creates two problems, really, this kind of thinking. And the first kind of problem it creates is you get a lot of people who only worry about this part of their salvation, and a lot of them, because of it, as Paul's going to show us, they're not really saved. They think they are, but they're not. Okay? That's, that's one thing. That's one problem that gets created. The second problem that gets created is those who really are saved do not do a good job of changing. If you think it's all front-end loaded, and God only really cares about the front-end, that Jesus' death and resurrection only does the front-end, and the middle piece sags. And a lot of people never really change, and we just struggle in our spiritual lives. You know, it's just kind of a... Hey, just suck it up in the middle. Just do the best you can. We'll just see what happens in the end. It's the feeling. That's just not what's intended. So Paul is about to show us that there are more sides to grace. Grace doesn't just 
God didn't frame load salvation. You're going to see that they're linked. Inseparably linked. Justification and sanctification are inseparably linked. But let me tell you what I mean. Justification saves you from the penalty of sin. You have that in your diagram. Sanctification saves you from the power of sin. That's how it works actively, how sin works actively in your life. So here's how you would see these. This might be a good phrase to write down to help understand. This is, God sees me as righteous. He sees me as righteous. He frees me to be righteous. He sees me as righteous. He frees me to be righteous. Both of those. He sees me as righteous as justification. He frees me to be righteous as sanctification. Now, before we hit chapter 6, and once we hit it, we're taking off, let me just say something. We've already been hinted at a couple of things in Romans 5. We've already hinted at this reality. Uh, and to some degree, it's not a hint, but it is the way Paul takes it in chapter 6. We've already been hinted at the fact that at, in Adam was one realm where sin and death dominated. And that there is another realm, and we saw them as realms. And the reason we say them as realms is because, because he uses the word reign. Realm, because he uses the word reign. That means there's some realm. Well, Adam had a realm, and sin is what rules it. Christ has a realm and righteousness rules. Now, just by the imagery, Paul is already hinting at something that grace has done. Grace, this is critical for six, transfers you to here, where righteousness dominates. You have been transferred to a new realm, like moving to a new country that has a new king. That's what Paul is saying. We said last week, it's kind of like Peyton Manning moving from the Indianapolis Colts to the Broncos. New colors, new leaders, new locker room, new laces, new everything. Everything all right? Keep an eye on me, Jody. All right, so it's kind of like moving to the Broncos. All right, that's kind of the image I want you to keep, keep in mind. All right? But the point is, and here's what he's hinted at. You didn't just get your sin account, which was so, you had so much sin, no righteousness. You had a depleted righteousness account. God didn't come in and just make you righteous standing over here or declare you to be righteous there. He actually did something else. He actually moved you from this realm to this realm. That's the other piece of salvation that actually happens. You get transferred. So something radically has changed. I'm not connected to Adam anymore. I am now connected to Christ. And the transformation or the movement of transfer is so decisive, it can be spoken of in terms of death and life. That's what he speaks of. All right? Now here becomes the key. In Romans 7, I'm setting you up for Romans 6. Uh, 
The key becomes, how do I told you what, what Peyton Manning said? I'm going to need some help acclimating to this new team. That's what we need. We need help acclimating to this new country, this new leadership, this new realm, this new life that we have been with. I want to just say, I want to read something to you. I want to try to be practical as I go through here. We'll see if I can do all that and teach you the text at the same time in the amount of time that we have. But it's God's intention, not just to front end load or just to make you feel righteous, just to give you kind of like a ticket to heaven. It was never God's intention just to say, hey, I'm passing out tickets for all you people in heaven who would like to have a ticket to heaven. That's not what he did. He moved you into a new realm. He didn't just pass out a ticket to heaven. Something else really happened. Because he has greater intentions for you than just to hand you something. And, and no one says this better than C.S. Lewis. If you read the, the last part of Mere Christianity, you just, just love it. He says this. He borrows a parable from George MacDonald. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's, he's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. Those are the easy things about your life to change. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house than the one you thought he was building. It's so, I got to this so often. The explanation, all right, he's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were just going to be made into this decent little cottage. But he's actually building a palace. He tends to come in and live in it. Then he goes on to say this, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into the, or filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. That's what God intended. He was not passing out tickets. Paul's about to show you. He had something far more radical in mind. Far more radical in mind. Have you seen this show, uh, Homes on Homes? Have you guys seen that? Okay, this is, uh, I don't even know what channel it's on. It's on this, uh, all the rebuild your house, new house stuff. Well, I saw for the first time over at uh, Jeff Wakefield's house because Jeff Wakefield is, I mean, he is the manliest girl you've ever seen in your whole life. I don't know how else to put it, but I get him about it all the time. He loves watching those shows, and he loves, he just loves the whole idea of all that uh, house stuff. Well, I had never seen the show before, and he made me watch this episode. I got into it, really started to like it, because this guy Holmes really knows his houses. He goes into these houses that are messed up. 
Okay, and then he starts to find everything wrong with him. And I mean, by the time he's done, he literally is jacking up the floor, redoing the foundation. Everything is redone. That's exactly what you got. Christ on your life. Christ in your house. Everything gets rearranged. That's the image that C.S. Lewis is pictured. Same idea. So powerful. And so when you get to chapter 6, though, here's what happens. You get to chapter 6, and I'm just going to go ahead and get rid of this stuff so that we have a, a blank screen to work with here in a minute. So when you hear all that God has done for us and how he has secured it, you ask the question, Paul does, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? You're going to ask two questions, two logical questions that grow out of this. About the middle piece of salvation. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, here's what I want to say about this. Uh, here's really what the question is saying. Is God bound to show grace even if I don't live for him? Is God bound to show grace to me even if I don't live? Remember, this grows out of verse 20 of chapter 5, which says where sin increases, grace does much more about. And so when you start to, to hear, really, it means that God would really save you. I mean, the question could be practically put like this. Can God save Jeffrey Dahmer? He ate people. So someone comes along and says, yes. And we would all say, say amen if this is true. God's grace could save a Jeffrey Dahmer. Amen. We all yes, amen. All right? But what if Jeffrey Dahmer said, oh, that's great. I love this grace. I really need it. But I would like to keep eating people. Could he keep eating people? See, that's really the question. What if I, what if I really have this... Uh, just have a taste for flesh. <laughs> yeah, that's the question. You say, God's grace is so amazing at the front of you say anybody. And then by the time you know that, you got a question, they go, well, what happens if you keep eating people? Uh, what's the connection? What's the connection? Can I continue in sin and just get more grace? Can I just keep getting grace? Sounds great. It's just expect forgiveness. W.H. Auden, who's my favorite poet, told you this before, but he has this great thing. I just love it. He says, I like committing crimes, he says, and God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. I like committing crimes, and God likes forgiving them, and hey, let's just go on with that arrangement. And that's all that matters. Now, for the longest time, I've perceived this question as a very bad question to ask. Why would anyone ask that question? The truth is, the way it's constructed is it's not inherently a negative question. It's not inherent. Like, Paul asks questions in Romans that are inherently negative. You, you know they're negative the way he states them, because it has this special particle in it, this negative particle in it. He doesn't have that here. So he's not necessarily drawing a negative inference, which means... 
This is actually a good question for someone to ask. In fact, you almost wish everyone who ever gives their life to Christ would ask the question, hey, is it okay if I keep some humanity coming down the aisle in the church and you just give your life to Christ, you got saved? Somebody ought to it would be great if everyone who gives their life to Christ asks, hey, is it okay if I keep sinning? So that somebody can actually tell them what? Of course not. Of course not. So it has that flavor to the question. Okay? It's not necessarily a negative question. The other thing you need to notice about the question, and we'll move from it, is this phrase right here, continuing sin. Sin is singular. By the way, it's singular all the way through Romans 6. Because what he's saying is, can I remain in a state of sin? In other words, can I stay over here with Adam? Can I stay in a state of sin? In other words, I, I love salvation, but I really don't want to move. That's really what's being asked. Can I stay over here? Because if I stay in a state of sin, what dominates here? Sin. So what will I likely do if I stay? Sin. I don't want to change rules. So it's a state of sin. So I want you to see the round picture. Okay, that's, that's where the emphasis is. So this would be paramount to Peyton Manning saying, you know, I really like that you paid me. I really like that you want me. I really like the idea of playing for the Broncos. But, but can I stay in Indianapolis? Can I be a Bronco and stay in Indianapolis? You know, orange doesn't become me. And mountains intimidate. I think I'd rather stay in Indianapolis. Okay, doesn't make any sense. That's, but that's the question. Hey, can I stay in Indianapolis even though I'm a Bronco? Can I keep my stuff in my locker? Because I like my old locker. Well, to that question is absolutely absurd. Basically, can I stay under the power of sin? So the way Paul phrases the question is, I'm really glad you asked, but are you stinking crazy? That's how he answers. That's exactly the feeling you get. May it never be. The strongest negative, I know you've heard that a million times. That's the strongest negative you can say. Okay? It looks like this. In Greek. Because you've probably heard it a million times. Meganoite, M-E, strong negative. There's your aristocratic verb, says genoite. Can you become? Never is that going to be true. It's just a state of verb. That's all it is. Never be. That can never be. So glad you asked. But are you stinking crazy? That's exactly the, the sentence. And Paul's going to give you, in Romans 6, two big overarching reasons why it's impossible. The first one comes in 6, 1 to 14, 6, 2 to 14. And then the second one comes in 15 to 23. In 1 to 14, or 2 to 14, he's basically saying, you are united with Christ. You have become united with Christ. You can't stay in sin. In chapter, that's, the, that's the, kind of the negative view. Okay, the relationship to sin. You have died with Christ. You are, you are no longer related to sin in the same way because now you're connected to Christ. And in the second half of the text, the passage, he's going to say, 
Not only that, you have been enslaved, positive, you have been enslaved to righteousness. So not only are you part of me now and not a part of that anymore, which makes the idea of sinning or you staying over there impossible, but now I've enslaved you to righteousness. Those are your two big ideas. First one has to do with union with Christ. And this is so amazing. Uh, notice what he says. Here's the question. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? It's kind of a rhetorical question, really designed to just throw the punch. And here's, here's what Paul does. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? There's your death-life image. Death is here. Life is in Christ. Die to sin, still living. Now listen, here's what Paul is saying. It's almost like he has a sixth sense. And what he looks at when he sees Christians asking the question, he sees dead people. Okay, he sees dead people. I just see a bunch of dead people. No, you can't do that because what? You're dead. You're dead to sin. Get this. Christ didn't just die for you. Get this. Who else died? You did too. This is amazing. You died with him. He didn't just die for you to give you a ticket to heaven. Guess what? You died with him. This is very very mystical. We're going to have to uh, understand it to some degree. But death is here. The point is, death is the harshest break you can have with anything, right? Is there any stronger break with some reality than death? If you die to it, then it cannot possibly be any longer. So I'm glad you asked, but you're crazy. You're dead. You're dead. You can't function over there anymore. That's what living You can't function over there anymore. Because you have died to sin. So whatever, whatever it means to become a Christian, it does not mean that God just handed you a ticket. It means something far more drastic than that, Paul says. That marks an entirely new existence. Okay? Look what he says. And now look at how he explains this mystical union. He's going to call, show you what this death means. Do you not know, he says, that's always Paul's way of saying, you really should. Okay, I don't want to make you feel it, but you really should know that all of us who have been baptized, don't get stuck here, don't make me get stuck here. We could all night long argue why this is not, why baptism doesn't save you. It's just the picture, okay? In the early church, baptism and conversion happened together. They didn't separate them the way we do. Okay? When you saw a person get baptized, that was their conversion. You got saved, you got baptized. That's how they saw it. It's part of a package. So the picture, and there's great arguments. Is this water baptism? Is talking about water baptism? Absolutely talking about water baptism. Because it's the picture. By now, water baptism, by the time Paul wrote, writes Romans, they would have understood baptism here to mean water. It would become a technical. Okay? So that means when you get water baptized into Christ, and all he's saying is that's the same image of conversion. When you are converted, which baptism pictures, you know you have been baptized into his death. You have been baptized 
into his death. Now watch. Therefore, you have been buried. Man, why buried? Remember in the gospel, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul sums up the gospel, okay, remember the first thing, the most important thing, the first and foremost thing, Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead. Why put buried in there? Buried in there is just, it's just confirmation of death. You know what you bury? What do you bury? You bury dead set. How dead was it? Buryable dead. <laughs> he was buryable dead. Okay? You were buried with him. Through baptism, there's the image again, into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He doesn't say that you've got a new life. You are in a new reality. That's why the adjective is there. It's stated the way it is. Newness. It's kind of a new reality is what has happened. That death has taken you into a new reality. Watch this. This is the best way I can describe it for you. Okay? So we have this picture of moving from Adam to Christ. Okay? This transfer. Here's, now here's what Paul adds to it that we didn't see. The cross in between. Jesus dies and he rises from the dead. And we'll just put a little hole in the ground here for him being buried too. Okay? Here's what happens. When I get transferred, because of what Christ does to me, I experience this dynamic and come over to here. You follow? Because that's what happened. You didn't just get, hey, a ticket to go over there. What just happened? You experienced something mystically and spiritually in Christ's death. That changes who you are and changes your place and location. You didn't just get a ticket to heaven. You didn't just get simply moved to a new place, a new locale. You actually experienced, in other words, Paul has just taken the, rede the, the historical redemptive events of death and resurrection and applied them to you in a way that changes everything about your life. So it wasn't just something Jesus did for you. It's something you experience with him that changes everything about your life. And so that's why Paul says in verse 5, uh, no, no, we need to stay in verse 5. That's why he says here, for if we have become, and here's his summary, here's the big word, circle that word in your Bible, united with him in the likeness of his death. Obviously, we didn't die the same death he died. Obviously, we didn't rise the same resurrection he did in the physical, literal sense. But in the spiritual, mystical sense, absolutely we did. And notice what he says. If you were united with him in his death, here's the key transitional statement. What's this word say? Listen, certainly is the theme of everything Paul has, is going to say from 5 to 8. Certainly. You better believe it. You better bank on it. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is the beginning of Paul's explanation of why sin does not belong in a believer's life. There are a couple of important things to notice. Somehow, I experienced the death and resurrection. So this death is not just for me. It happens to me. 
It's an experience. Okay? So his death and resurrection created a historical shift in ages. I moved from Adam to Christ at conversion. Because baptism is when I experienced the shift. Baptism for them, for us, it wouldn't mean necessarily when you went into the water. For us, it would mean when you were converted, that baptism pictures. Okay? When you were converted, you went through that death resurrection experience and were shifted to a new age, a new leader. You participated in those redemptive events. Okay? So you died to one reality and you rose to a new one. Two implications as it relates to security and sin. As it relates to security, watch this. My salvation is more than a move that can be undone. So this is what I want you to see about salvation here in this picture. Because we're going to address two questions here. First one is the security question. And then the second one is the sin question. So watch this. This is such a great picture that Paul presents here. Uh, is it possible that I could lose this position and end up being brought over here because of something that I did? Well, watch this. Guess what would have to happen? Guess what would have to happen? Not just a simple transfer of a letter, maybe, like we do go to church to church. You would have to, you would have to undo this spiritual, mystical experience. Not possible. It's impossible to undo this mystical experience Paul is going to show us. So, from a security standpoint, you don't just move it and lose it. You would have to undo this dynamic. That dynamic cannot be undone. So that's the security. I could no more, I could no more go back if then Christ could undo all this and go back. See? Because I'm wrapped up in him. If he can't go back, I can't go back. I only got over there through him. I could only get back how? Through him. Is that powerful? why you can't lose it. So listen, salvation isn't just a possession you have that you can lose. It's an experience that cannot be undone. So it's an indissolvable connection to Christ. Here's the sin issue. I can't say that I want to experience the cross and have what Jesus does for me on the cross and I want salvation over here I want his death, but I don't want his resurrection. I don't want his new life. I don't want the new reality he creates. I just want heaven. Can you do that? No. Because I can't pick this apart and say, you know what? Here's what I want to do. I want to take the resurrection off. I only want to experience the death so that I can live in heaven forever. But I don't want the resurrection and the new life that comes with it. To say that you're a Christian and don't have to try to live holy or to be holy is to say I only want his death but I really don't want anything to do with the resurrection. Can't do it. That's how impossible. So to say you are saved and not live for him is paramount to saying I want his death but I don't want his resurrection. And you know what? Uh, Dallas Willard would call that just vampire Christians. They just want to suck the blood out of Jesus Try to get to heaven, get their forgiveness, but they don't want to live for it. They don't want them to be their Lord. 
They're vampire Christians. They're bloodsuckers. They should have asked the question, can I keep sinning? Can I keep doing what I want and still have what Jesus offers? Because if that's the motivation, then Paul's destroying that, that thought and process. Now, so here's what I want you to see. This is very, very important. In our conscious experience, we find a new center and a new, uh, new center, a new organization, a new orientation. So sin has in its grip. It does not have it, us in its grip anymore. We now have an alternative to sin. This is a really important mental, psychological reality that you have to live in. That, and it allows you to redirect your life. Okay? Very, very important. And we'll see how. Because watch what he says here in verse 6. You'll never be what God wants you to be here unless you are fully understanding what has happened to you, what he did to you, what you experienced in him. Knowing this, notice how he states it here, that our old self was crucified. There's the language. Now he even makes it more dramatic and gruesome. Not that you just experienced the death and resurrection. You were crucified. Very strong language. God considers us, spiritually, to have died that same death. Not in some ethereal, weird metal. In reality, you are considered to have died with it. Okay? Now, something you need to know about this phrase right here that I think is important. Okay? The old self. Some of you have the old man. Right? Okay. So let me take you back to our image. In this image, because here's, here's one of the mistakes we make when it comes to living for Christ on a regular basis. Uh, the idea is that somehow we are two people. We have an old self and a new self. Right? That's how we see it. And so what happens is our old nature is dead. So we just see an old nature is dead and a new nature is now alive. Well, that's not, that's not true practically in any way. Because if this were fully dead, would I sin? No. And so what is he saying then? The old and new are not old and new you. They're old and new places. It's the old regime versus the new regime. What happened? I died to this old regime. And now I'm a part of a new regime. That is the idea. And I don't have time to do this. But you can on your own read Colossians chapter 3 where it is the clearest. And Ephesians chapter 4. It's even mentioned in 2. You see the old man and the new man. Here's what Paul will say from a practical standpoint. He'll say, you ought to, he'll command you to put on the new man. What he means by that is act like the new man in the new place that you are. Not saying you have two natures. Saying that you're in a new place. So act like you're in the new place. Acclimate to the new place. Your old 
place is crucified. Your old life, as it relates to this place, is dead. And now you are over here in this new one. Okay, so the best way to say that. The old self is not a part of me. It's something I was a part of. That's probably a good way to write it. The old self, the old man, is not a part of me. It's something I was a part of. And I'm no longer a part of it. By the way, you've heard the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new what? You hear that stated as if he is a new creature. It's not he is a new creature. He is part of a new creation. You're a part of something new. That's the idea. And that's what Paul is saying here. You are a part of a new creation. Okay? So, he says in uh, verse 6, why? Why is this happening? Okay? The old self was crucified in order that. What was the reason for that? That the body of sin might be done away with. In other words, my body as it related to sin. Because how do I live in this reality? Let me get a new one. How do I live in this reality? Okay, well, it's my body. My body is how I interact with that reality. Okay? I, I, I can't, I'm not in the world if I don't have a body. And the way I interact is this. So this is my body. What, what, my body was controlled by sin. Well, now that you have moved over here, guess what? Your body doesn't have to do the sin that was over here. You see what he's saying? Now you have a new leader. We're righteousness. So now what I need your body to acclimate to doing something different. This is what he uses. I don't want your body doing sin anymore. So I've moved you over to here. In a new round. That's the idea. See, now your body is directed by a new power. So all he's saying is, I've destroyed sin's influence. By moving you over, I've destroyed sin's influence. Why? Because you're no longer a slave to sin. This is singular again, remember. You're no longer, you're no longer a slave to this reality. So he says, right there, in verse 6, what? That we no longer be slaves to sin. In the verse 7, he says this. Look at what he says in verse 7. He who has died is freed from sin. He who has died is everything he's been saying up to here, the experience that I had in Christ. If I died to that reality, guess what I am? This is not a very good word. Freed is not a good word. This is the word justified Paul's been using all along in, the, in Romans 1 to 5. This is righteous. This is justified, is the idea here. So, he who has died is, has been justified from sin. So, justific justification takes you back to what Christ initially did to you. If that happened to you, guess what else happened to you? You died. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, oh, I got my ticket to heaven, but I didn't die to this old place. No. You got your ticket to heaven. You also died to this place. That's what verse 7 is saying. Can't have one without the other. So what you see is he's linking justification and sanctification. You can't pick up. can't pick and choose. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, now watch. Everything he said about our old self and dying 
he repeats about the death part, our death experience with Christ, is repeated in 6 and 7. So 6 and 7 talk about the death. 8, 9, and 10 talk about the new life that we have in Christ. All right? And that goes a little bit like this. Look what he says. Knowing that, now we're going to talk about the resurrection part of our life. Our life. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Very significant. And here's why. This is the same language that he has used to describe our situation. We died with Christ. We rose. We no longer live. But he applies it to Christ. As if to say, your experience is exactly like his. Your experience is as wrapped up in his experience as possible to be. So when I talk about your new life in Christ, I might as well talk about Christ's new life since he rose from the dead. Same power. Same picture. And no sooner could he be unresurrected and, and undead than you could be unresurrected or undead. That's why he puts it in the language of what Christ is. Christ having been raised from the dead, look at this, is never to die again. Once for all. His life is utterly indestructible. Well, guess who you're connected to? So what does that make your life? Indestructible. But you didn't just experience his death. You experienced his resurrection too. So there should be new life with him. That's Paul's argument. Very powerful. Let's see, let's get uh, back to uh, verse 8 here. Notice what it says. If we have died with Christ, we believe, here's, here's your middle verb, okay? We believe, if we've died with him, we shall live with him. In between is that. So let's, let's look at it like this. Paul says, okay, we died. I want you to believe that you also rose. You believe you died with him, then you need to believe you rose with him too. Paul is putting this belief in between, almost separating two things that are inseparable, as if to say, hey, don't walk around like all he did was die for you. You need to walk around like he rose for you too and live like he rose for you. Do you see? Link them. Don't separate the events in your actual everyday thinking in your life. Don't wake up and say, I'm a Christian. Don't wake up and say, I'm a Christian. Because what Jesus died for me here. No, you got to think to yourself the other part. But he also rose for me, so that means today I need to live a resurrected life. Not just think about the front end. Paul is saying you got to think about the back end too. Does that make sense? you got to believe the other half of this story too. So amazing. So amazing. For your life to be undone, his life would have to be. Then you get to verse 11. 
Just so you know, all the verbs used so far to describe what Christ has done to you are passive verbs. This has all been done to you. You haven't done a thing yet. That's very significant. Because Christ didn't just justify you, he also sanctified you. His death and resurrection sanctified you, positioned you to be holy. So, the logical conclusion, verse 11, which is kind of the hinge verse, is so, so, consider yourselves to be dead. Consider yourself to be dead, just what Paul was saying in verse 8, and alive to God in Christ. Don't wake up wondering, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know, I don't know, I'm, you know, the whole miserable Christianity thing. No, no, no. You consider yourself dead. This is a very important verb. The idea is just look at it hard in the face. Don't turn your eyes away from it. Look at it. You have risen with him too. And if you've risen with him, then you've risen with him to a new life. And don't dare think that you can go on sinning like it's no big deal. Consider yourself dead. Now, this is the command. This is, the, this is your first imperative, all right? So this, this comes your first command. So what does that look like? So we consciously and purposely enter into this event, this death and resurrection in our mind. And here's what it says. Here's what it looks like practically when you wake up in the morning. Because you're wondering, what does that mean in the morning? All right, in the morning it means I actually think of my old ways and say, I'm dead to that. I disassociate myself with that thought process, with, that, with those desires. I disassociate myself with everything related to that. And I reassociate, I disconnect, I connect to something completely different, mentally, in my head. So you say to yourself, that is not, this is the old way of living, that is not and cannot and shall not be who I am. Why? Because it's not who you are. Living for God is acting like who you are. It's not a chore. It's acting like who you are. Because of what he's done for you. One of the illustrations that comes to my mind is St. Augustine. If you ever read St. Augustine, it's, um, in, the, in the fourth century, Great impact on the Western church. Comes to Christ late in the 4th century. And, uh, and his past, he writes about it a lot. In fact, he writes about it so much, some people wonder if he's kind of exaggerating a little bit. But he has lots of sexual escapades. So whenever he writes, he really strongly remembers his post or his pre-conversion life where he was very sexually active. And he tells the story after having, coming, after having come to Christ. Tells the story of one day walking down the street and passes by a lady that he had been with. The lady passes him by and, and says hello to him, a former mistress who says hello to him on the street. She recognizes him, kind of excited as she passes him. But he passes by with a quick glance and keeps walking. And she, uh, she stops, turns around and, and says, Augustine, it's I. And he stops and turns around and his smiles and says, yes, I know, but it's not I. 
power. That's not me. That's not me. So when the gospel comes, Paul is saying, it forces you to think in a completely different way about your life. And so, real quickly, let's do these verses so I can get to these last, the last pieces are, are easier to deal with. Wait a minute, is that verse 11? Oh yeah, here's verse 12. Therefore, okay, since you consider yourselves dead and alive to God, therefore, don't let, is it hot in here or is it me? Can we, uh, like, get the ice maker out or whatever we gotta do? Thank you. Uh, don't let, therefore, here it is. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Don't, therefore, don't let it happen. See, the argument, and this is uh, the idea, okay? Because you have transferred, okay? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. He's already brought up the body parts that you obey its lust. The body wants things, you're not giving it to it anymore. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. How can I do that? Well. The reason I cannot let sin reign is because sin, sin has been removed as the leader of my life. That's the reason I can do it. That's the logic behind Paul's become like, become holy. This has already happened for you. So don't present, look at what he says here. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and, and your members, he's moved from body to members, as instruments, hey, your Bible says instruments, it's actually weapons. So Paul is envisioning your body parts, which is what really do your sinning for you, as instruments of righteousness. So, there was a time when I used my body parts as a part of the military campaign of the sin domain. And I was an active volunteer. I did my part in the service of sin. But now, you're in this new army. And you're supposed to use these same weapons for Christ. For righteousness. So present your weapon. So when we sin, the picture is almost as if I've taken the weapons that have been given to me in this new domain and I use them against my own team. I almost come over here and use them against myself. That's the picture. I'm, gonna, I'm using my body parts as weapons against my own team. You put it in that language and it's pretty radical when you think about it. Wow. And he says, sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law. You are under grace. Now, this is kind of the, where the transition comes to the second half. The second half of this is pretty basic. I'm going to give it to you pretty quickly. Sin shall not be master over you. That's a promise. That's not a command. It's a promise. Sin doesn't run your life anymore. Here's the reason, Paul says, you can't continue in sin. You've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. You have died to an old way of living. You now are no longer enslaved to sin. Grace has done far more than you didn't just forgive you. It didn't just pardon you. It empowers you. Now you use your members for righteousness. And Paul says, you're not under law, which increases sin. 
Remember, that's what we said. Law increases sin. You're under grace. Grace? Back to your question in verse 1. Should I sin so that grace may abound? No. Because grace is a righteousness energizer. It's not a sin energizer. And you're in grace. So we said, you really have to acclimate yourself. You have to acclimate yourself in this new reality. Okay? Uh, real quickly, let me show you just something. If you've ever read Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this, and then we'll take a, a, a quick break, and then I'll knock the rest of this out for us, okay? Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. You remember in, in Screwtape Letters, Uncle Screwtape kind of reproaches the re uh, apprentice demon, Wormwood, because he let this guy he's working on on Earth become a Christian. He calls him a patient. Humans are patients. So he says, how could you let that guy come to Christ? Because he's a demon, right? And Wormwood is like, I don't know. I could, did my best, but I couldn't do anything about it. The guy became a Christian. What do I do now? And so his uncle, who is kind of training him to be a better demon, Screwtape, please. That's Uncle Screwtape. Screwtape says to him, well, there's no need to despair. Let's not panic yet. Why? Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp. It appears as though they come over here for a little while, but we can easily lure them back. And here's what he says. All the habits of this new convert, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. So everything I used to do over here, I've got to relearn real quick so that I can come over here and live. I've got to learn new habits. That's the idea. So part of growing spiritually is coming up with new habits, new ways of seeing reality, new ways of seeing yourself, new ways of seeing your relationships so that everything changes. You don't perceive it the same way that you used to. And I'll give you another picture of that as, as we end this text. But let's go back to here. Uh, let, I'll tell you what. Let's just stretch. Just take a break. If you need water, you're about to pass out. You need a bigger fan. Stay in front of one. Just take a minute, and then we'll, then we'll knock this out. Okay? So if you want to take a break, let's do that. You need to use the restroom. But there are some things said in the second half of Romans 6, and then it ends better than you can even imagine. But it's amazing what happens in the second half. So I'm very excited about some of the things that I want to share with you. I'm going to move a little fast. It's not near as long as what we just did. So don't panic. We only have a, we have a limited amount of time. Okay? Uh, don't let that scare you. Alright? Uh, so, here's what happens. Here's what happens. Paul ends with this law-grace distinction. And that raises a second question along the lines of the first one. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Remember the first question was, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? The first question had to do with continuing in sin. But Paul does such a nice job of saying, hey, you can't continue in sin. Why? Because I moved you from sin over to righteousness. I actually moved you. In union with Christ, I moved you over here. So the guy is listening to Paul's argument, and he asks the next logical question. He asks the next logical question. Okay, well, then 
Shall we sin because we are not under law? Because you just said we're not under law. Oh, okay, so now that I'm over here in grace, let's call it Graceland. Now that I'm over here in Graceland, is it? And since there's no law in Graceland, like there was in Sinland, is it okay if I sin since we don't have a law over here? Like, what's grace going to do about the fact that there's no law over here? So here's the first question. All right, grace is a beautiful thing. It saved the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. We love grace. Well, guess what else grace did? Grace didn't stop there. Grace moved you. Grace united you with Christ and moved you into a whole new reality. And Paul's about to say it does something else. We're not done with grace yet. We're not even done with grace yet. Grace also does something else. Which is the argument here. You sin because we're not under law but under grace. Here's his saying. Glad you asked, but are you nuts? Same thing. Glad you asked, but are you nuts? Do you not know? That's that way of Paul saying, you ought to know this. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Do you not know that when you present yourselves, here's just a logical reality. When you present yourselves, surrender yourselves to someone as a slave for obedience, Remember, the issue is obedience. That's what we're talking about in sanctification. So Paul switches language now. How am I actually going to do righteousness here? Now Paul's talking about actually doing it. So he says, when you present yourself as slaves of obedience to someone, guess what? You become the slaves of whomever you obey. You become a slave of whoever you obey. Either of sin, which results in death. We already know that. Or you're a slave to obedience, which results in righteousness. It's the same thing we've been saying up here. You're either on the sin side or you're on the righteousness side. And by the way, now Paul's getting a little more practical and says, whoever you surrender to, whoever's over you, that's who you're a slave to. So Paul's going to talk about now a, a kind of slavery that happens here. And a kind of slavery that was happening over here. Because I obeyed sin here, I was enslaved to it. Paul's going to say, well, guess what happens when you come over here and you start obeying him? You become a slave to him. All right? So that's kind of the language. That's, the whole idea is you're enslaved to someone. Just like you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no human autonomy. You're enslaved to one of them. All right? And your actions bind you to one reality or the other. Listen, uh, um, I'm just so excited because this is so, you're going to love this. You're just going to love what he does now. You're just going to love it. Notice what he does now. He's going to stop for just a second and he's going to say, thanks be to God. And you're just wondering when he was going to break out in that anyway. But it's not this kind of like, you know, like the only charismatic in the, in, the, in the church group that stands up and, you know, it's not Felicia. It's not a Felicia moment. Felicia just standing up, and she can't wait. She's going to tell you how she feels right now in a minute. This is not so much a Felicia moment, okay, a charismatic moment. This is Paul saying, listen to me. I'm thanking God for having done this for you. You didn't do it. This is a God deal. Sanctification is far more a God deal than you think it is. He did it. Though you were slaves, look, you became obedient from the heart. This is such an amazing verse. You haven't heard salvation described like this. I guarantee you. You were slaves of sin. 
thanks to God, but then it kind of goes off in this little tangent. You were slaves to sin. You became obedient, but you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, this is not said very well when I say something to you here. This is so, so powerful. All right, so he's focusing on the divine side. Don't miss this. All the errors, passive verbs in this text so far have told you that your sanctification is, is largely dependent on what God has done for you. Not you waking up every day going, I hope I can do it today, God. I hope I can do it today, God. I hope I can do it today, God. God's looking at you. Hey, you rose from the dead, you monkey. Live like it. That's all God said. You see? See, God's going to try my best today. No, that's not it at all. God has put you and positioned you to wake up, risen from the dead. Live like it. That's what he's saying. Now watch. Here's salvation. You became obedient. When have you heard salvation? Anything more? Uh, you believe, you believe, you believe, you get saved. You believe, you believe, you believe. Guess what happens? Guess what else? When you believe in what you believe, you also obey from the heart. Salvation is obedience from the heart. To what? To that form of teaching. This is a great phrase. Because this, this is the idea. Translating this little genitive phrase is really interesting. This is, this is really saying you are obedient to a teaching that forms you. You're obedient from the heart, internally, what God has done for you. When you believed, you also obeyed. You obeyed from the heart a kind of a teaching. A teaching that wasn't just, I know we don't have the law over here in Graceland, but when you gave your life to Christ, you became obedient to a reality. And that reality is forming you into something else that you're obedient to. Now, salvation is pictured as obedience. And guess what? To which you were literally handed over is a better word than committed. To which you were handed over. It doesn't mean that the teaching was handed over to you. It means you were handed over to the teaching, to the reality. He just takes the reality and puts it in the language of what you heard when you heard the gospel. In other words, the gospel isn't something that just took you to heaven. There was a kind of, there's something else about the teaching. Because see, the, the Jews would say, going back to this form being, their form for righteousness was the law. That was their form. The law would form you into something. Paul is saying, no, no, no. We don't need the law to form us. Because what happened to us on the inside is we became obedient internally from the heart. That's what he's saying. You became obedient from the heart to a teaching that forms you. You don't need a law to form you. The gospel forms you. Isn't that amazing? Now it's all coming from the heart. It's not coming from an external law anymore. That's why you don't need the law in Graceland. And guess what? You were handed over to it. That's the same language of slave transfer. Not committed. That's not a good word. Handed over is the word. Just like you were handed over, you were handed over to the teaching. You believed it, but guess what God did? He handed you over to that reality. In other words, transferred you from this slave, from a slave to sin, to a slave of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? We could spend so much more time there. I'd love to spend more. That's what I have in my notes. Yeah, you can all just love it. Hand it over. See, here's the deal. You're not just free to go. When you get saved, you're not just free to go. Look, you're free 
to serve righteousness. You're not just free to go. You're freed to serve. That's the difference. See, they would have understood voluntary slavery. Because see, back then when you had a deficit, a financial deficit really bad, guess what you did? You sold yourself to the person who owned you, who, who you were indebted to. And so they were very used to the idea that I would put myself into a slavery. I'll, I'll put myself, why? To avoid financial disaster and even death. To avoid that, I'll enslave myself. They understood the enslaving self problem. Okay? And that's what we did. We came to Christ and we go, oh my gosh, I'm a slave to sin and this sin is killing me. I'm, I'm about to hit spiritual disaster. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to enslave myself to Christ. Because over here I live. That is the idea. But you find out that you didn't enslave yourself really. Notice, having been which you were committed. This is a passive verb. This happened to you. God handed you over to this form, to this whole new idea and reality and regime. God did it. That's why you can do it, because of what he did. So thanks be to God, look. Now, having been freed, look, you didn't do that. That's another passive verb. Having been freed from sin, guess what you did? You became a slave. A slave of what? A slave of righteousness. You're just enslaved to something else. So the whole idea here is, what happens? You know, I was a slave to sin. Well, now you're a slave to righteousness. Having been freed from sin, he became a slave of righteousness. Freed. Okay, he became a slave of righteousness. This is one of my favorite illustrations. Um, Booker T. Washington in his book, Up From Slavery, which I didn't read. So I don't want to give you that idea. But I read somebody who read, this is what, what he says in his book. So T. Booker T. Washington, in Up From Slavery, said that every morning of his young life, all the slaves were awakened long before daylight by the crow of a rooster. Black as pitch or not, that rooster was their call to hit the floor of their sod shanty and leave the fields to work. Then came the Emancipation Proclamation. Mr. Lincoln had spoken. The slaves were free. And the first morning after, young Booker, Booker was awakened by the sound of his mother chasing that rooster around the farmyard with an axe. Look, the emancipation or the emancipation proclamation was hard on roosters all across the south. <laughs> that very day, the Washingtons fried and ate their alarm clock for lunch. Before the emancipation, their bogus calling was dictated by the endless ritual crow of the rooster. But now their true calling was the wondrous cry of freedom. You no longer have to obey nasty-sounding rooster and do what he tells you to do. You have a new master. Great, great things. Exactly what happens. Now, from a spiritual perspective, the significance of this is important. So I thought I should stop and say something to you right here. Because you start to see the structure of New Testament ethics here, and you start to see what it means about to live the Christian life. Hopefully that's coming through, but I want you to realize this. Here's what Paul is really saying. 
Don't let sin master you because sin is not your master and I'm not going to let it master you. That's the logic. Here's the reason I don't want you to sin. Sin's not your master anymore. And I'm not going to let it rule over you anymore. That's the reason behind sanctification. That's the motivation for it. So it's far more sovereign loaded than it is self-determination. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. If I just see myself as enslaved to something else and I realize I can't do this anymore, So he doesn't save uh, uh, all this grace and then save you with all this grace and then let you go and leave you to yourself to wake up every day and try to be holy. As if self-determination was all it took to be righteous. We don't really have a final say in the sanctification process. God does. He has led you down a different path. He has put you in a different path. Place, practice. Practically speaking, you would say this when you wake up in the morning. I choose, I choose not to let sin reign because God dethroned it. That's why. Not because I'm smarter, not because I read a book, not because I have a prayer partner, not because I have a this, not because I have a that, not because, of, because God said he doesn't run the show anymore. You see? See how simple that is? No, no, it's not that radically hard. He just doesn't run the show anymore. So I'm not going to let it. Okay? Uh, I think about this in terms of the imagery of like a Peyton Manning, if I could keep that image up, moving from the Indianapolis Coast to the Broncos. All right? Uh, he's used to throwing completions for the Indianapolis Colts. He's used to that system. And he learned it well and did it well, framed most of it in his head, and he could throw completions for them. Now he has to throw completions for the Broncos. This is really not to the white, but to the orange. He has to throw completions to them. And he doesn't do it. He does it because he's a Bronco. And he has a new team and a new leader. That's how it works. I have a new team and a new leader, so I'm supposed to throw to the orange people now. I'm not allowed to throw to the white people. I don't throw to the white, the white team anymore, not because, because I'm smart and because I figured it out. I'm part of the orange team now. That's why I throw completions to the orange team. It's kind of uh, somewhat of the, the way this works out, though. It's kind of like, imagine a country where uh, some, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones, Illustration, preacher back in the 1150s, 60s, he used to say, okay, so what if you had this uh, country where there's a very oppressive king and an oppressive people, and then there, uh, there was an oppressed people, an enslaved people, and they did this for centuries and centuries and centuries. They were so used to this class ruling this class. And then one day, there was a new king, a new king comes, and uh, the new king changes all this. No, no, nobody's over anybody here. No one's enslaved to anybody here. You've done it for so long, you meet somebody on the street and, and, and they would tell you what to do and you had to do it. But now you meet them on the street and they tell you what to do out of habit because that's what they're used to doing. You're used to hearing it. You're so used to doing it, you do it. When in reality, you're totally free to do it. You don't have to do it anymore. That's what Paul, that's the, that's the imagery that Paul is saying. He's, they're not your leader anymore. 
You don't have to do it. For a while, you're going to be freaked out there. Remember when the wall came down, the, the Berlin Wall came down, east and west are now joined, sort of? I kept an article of how people wouldn't cross the line anyway, even though they could, because they were so used to not doing it, they couldn't make themselves go across the line. Someone, had, they, they couldn't adapt to the reality that they don't have to stay over here now. And that's what Paul is trying to say. Stop adapting to the reality that you have to sin. And you almost wake up with this idea that I'm going to fail. The wall's been taken down. Move over. That's what Paul has in mind here. And so comes... This is quick now. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, this is Paul trying to say, wow, I know I'm speaking in terms of slavery. And now, do I really want to call Christians slaves? And he's not sure he wants to do that. But the reason he uses it is because it's so hard to understand the image. It's so hard to understand what he's trying to say that he uses the idea of slavery. So he says, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. And guess what you got? More lawlessness? So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. There's the big word, becoming more holy. You become more holy by becoming slaves to righteousness. Okay? Uh, now look what he says here. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were enslaved to sin, you were completely unobligated to do anything righteous. Completely unobligated. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the thing for which you were now ashamed? In other words, this is Phil, this is a Dr. Phil's question. So, so is that working for you? This is Dr. Phil's question. I love it. Is that working for you? Because Paul said, uh, what did you get? You just got things you're ashamed of now, and guess what the outcome is? Death. Just a death-like existence. And if you think about sin in your life, has it ever really produced anything that great ultimately? See, sometimes you just have to stop and say, you know, I know that would really feel good. I know that would really taste good. I know that would really be nice. But in the end, it's just going to kill me. At some point, you've got to say that to yourself. Right? So that's what, that's what Paul's saying, and I just love that. Maybe it's all Dr. Phil on this. And then, here's the best two verses of the entire passage. Take a sip of coffee. Go ahead and take a sip. Because I couldn't wait to get here. Now, having been freed from sin, now he summarizes the entire chapter. You have been freed from sin. That's all up in chapter 1, 6, 1 to 14. You're united with Christ. Sin doesn't dominate you anymore because you're in Christ. And guess what else? Look what else grace did. Enslaved you to God. It didn't just justify you. It united you with Christ and enslaved you to righteousness. And, guess, and, and what do you get? Hey, is that working for you? Yes. It's giving me sanctification. And the outcome, what? Look at this. This is amazing. You, I promise this is going to be new for most of you. It's new to me. The outcome of what? Sanctification is what? When have you ever heard that? I want 
I want to draw this thought out for you and then we're done. Get this. Because of what God has done, remember, all of this is based, when you wake up in the morning and try to live holy, it's not you doing your best to try to help God out. It's God's done all this for you, so just get on with it. You see the difference in the weight of that? God did all this for you, just get on with it. That's the idea. And the outcome eternal life, God did it all. The results are sanctification. Watch, this is amazing. Eternal life, eternal life now, is defined as being freed from sin. Look, freed from sin, enslaved to God, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome of the fruit, your Bible might have fruit, in other words, the result or the impact, the fruit ends up being eternal life. Now, I want you to see something that's very powerful here. Let me draw this. Sanctification leads to eternal life. Now watch. Most of us think, this is how we think and how we thought perhaps before we got into chapter 6. What gives you eternal life? Saved by faith. Justification is what gets you eternal life. Well, Paul is coming from here and saying, uh, I'm going to stop right here in the middle and tell you no. This leads to eternal life. When have you heard that? When have you heard living holy leads to eternal life? Here's why Paul can do that. Because of these are so linked that it doesn't matter which one I start with. It doesn't matter. If you're justified, you better believe. You better believe you're sanctified. You're going to be holy. And that leads to eternal life. Eternal life is this, this, just as much as it is this. So you could never say, well, I'm saved, but I don't want to live holy. No, you don't get to eternal life by skipping holiness. You see? You don't get to eternal life by skipping holiness. They're linked. Just as much as the death and resurrection of Christ are linked. My last page of notes. That's how you know we're really done. Because I have nothing else to say. But I wanted you to see something that I saw for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, and I just loved it. And it's a verse, here's the reason why, because it's a verse we all know really well. And I want you to see it in light of chapter 6, which is, which is typically not how we understand the verse. Notice what he said. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's what I want. The for <clears throat> tells you, whatever eternal life is, and look, uh, free gift of God is eternal life. Look, they match. So whatever they are, they're the same in verse 22 as they are in verse 23, right? That's what you need to see. So verse 23 is the basis of verse 22. Verse 22 becomes the basis of verse 23. 
Uh, 22. 23 becomes the basis. All right, look. How do you get eternal life? Sanctification. Not justification. Sanctification in this text gets you eternal life. That means what's really the gift? Not just eternal life, but what else? Sanctification is the gift. That's what the gift is. It's not justification that's the free gift in this verse. It's sanctification that the holy life is a gift just like salvation is. Just like justification. Never saw that. So being free from sin and enslaved to God is part of the gift. And you can't have eternal life without it. So you can't say, I want salvation, but I don't want a holy life. Can't do it. Because the holy life is as much a gift as the justification. Now, let me just say this to you. And I'll just close it. I won't even mention it. But here's what I, what I want to show you. Sin, sin pays wages. If you're under sin, that's what you get. Okay, that he pays a wage. If you are, uh, but God gives gifts. Here's the reason why the slavery imagery was tough for Paul. Because for Paul, if you're a slave, you earn wages. But if you're a slave in Christ, you didn't even deserve that. It was a gift. So God only gives gifts. He doesn't pay wages. Does that make sense? That's the idea. So you say, uh, well, what does it mean then that, uh, I think we have an issue going on over there. They're in good hands. Let me finish this. Um, what does it mean then that I sin sometimes? Well, here's how I want to conclude. If first press conference that Peyton Manning has with the Denver Broncos after he throws his first interception and he threw it to the white team. He's going to get up there and what do you think he's going to say at that press conference? Well, we blew up coverage and I, I, couldn't, I didn't see it right and I was trying to do this but I couldn't do that. When he throws an interception, that's going to be what? That's an absolute accident. I didn't want to do it. I didn't intend to do it. In other words, it's revolting to me. I'm uninterested in interceptions. I will learn. I will do my best this week to make sure I don't throw that interception again. Not I'm happy to sin. The more interceptions, the better. When you sin, you ought to feel just like Peyton Manning does, having been moved to the Broncos if he throws it to the other team. You've thrown it to the other team. If you throw it to the other team, that ought to feel more like, Dad, gum threw it to the other team. I screwed up this morning. I didn't start my day right. I didn't do this right. I wasn't thinking straight here. But that's not going to happen again tomorrow. That's our attitude towards sin. Not how can I stay in it. Hey, this is really great. And, you know, letting yourself off the hook all the time. Sin ought to feel as revolting as an interception. I did it because I, I'm going to do it. But I don't want to do it. And I didn't, I didn't wake up hoping to do it. You see? See the difference? That's how it should feel. Sin should be uninteresting, as uninteresting interesting as an interception. Or as revolting to a quarterback. Alright? Alright. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. I pray that you're blessing. I pray that uh, uh, this young lady over here is the
this situation. In Jesus' name.